Joining me in the Data Cafe today is Larry Winkless, a physicist, author, and science communicator. Larry has a background in physics, physics degree from Trinity College Dublin, which is where we first met. She then went on to work in the UK's National Physical Laboratory as a research scientist specialising in functional materials. She's an amazing science communicator who's written a really impressive number of fascinating blogs, articles, publications across the likes of Forbes, Wired and Esquire. And what's really impressive is published two science books, uh, most recently Sticky, The Secret Science of Surfaces, and her first book, Science and the City, was on the mechanics behind the metropolis. Larry, it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the Data Cafe today. It's so lovely to be here, Jason. Thanks. Thanks a million for the invite. So I wanted to talk first about Sticky. Mm. And this is really cool about the secret science of surfaces, which all around us in the world, and we interact with them all the time. Loads of fascinating case studies throughout your book. And what surprised me in that context a little bit is that there's still this kind of ongoing discovery in defining what is stickiness, mm. even though friction is such an important concept in physics. Can you tell me a bit about why this is so and the kind of challenges in this field of research? Yeah, I think the re the main reason really I call the book sticky is because it's a word that we as humans, regardless of our scientific background, have this kind of instinctive understanding of or have a relationship with so you know I've I've often asked people when I when I say the word sticky what do you think of and someone might say oh my kids with their sticky hands after eating something sweet or you know like the the adhesives and paints in my garage you know people have this relationship with the word sticky so we we understand what it means but then when we put our scientist hats on there's no scientific definition for the word sticky. You know, there isn't a single metric that we can use to describe something as sticky. It's not something like density, you know, where we have an actual measurement. We have a real number, a real metric that we can use, and we can then compare things in terms of their density or their mass or whatever, you know, right. their crystal structure. So, you know, we've got all of these definitions that we can use in science, but the word sticky is not one of them. And, and therefore the kind of, interaction uh, between between materials is also one that is really difficult but impossible in fact to summarize in a single metric now it's not to say we don't have any metrics we have lots and lots of things like the word viscosity for example that will tell us something about how a fluid will move or how a liquid will interact. So something that's more viscous is kind of more sticky in inverted commas. You know, it has this resistance to flow. Yeah. So maybe that's a metric that we could use and we can use in some contexts when we're thinking about stickiness. But then what about between dry surfaces or solid surfaces? How do we describe that? And you said friction, right? We talk about friction all the time, all the time. Yeah. But things like the coefficient of friction, that's probably another metric that maybe we could use to describe how solid surfaces interact. So the coefficient of friction being a measure of how hard or how easy it is for two surfaces to slide along one another. So that could maybe be considered, I would argue, that should be considered a, a, one of these measures that helps us to describe how surfaces interact. But that itself is a weird metric. And this isn't something I had fully grasped actually to be honest before I started researching this book yeah. which is that the coefficient of friction is not something that we can predict we can't take everything we know on the atomic level about two materials 
and put it into a series of equations and then out pops a coefficient of friction. We can't do that. We don't have that ability to do that. That number is something that's always been measured experimentally. So it's always been an average. And when I think about how often I used coefficients of friction in different equations and in different contexts, I was like, what? We don't have a way to, you know, we don't have a way to calculate this from first principles. And I just loved that idea that we had this, we have this fundamental, these fundamental kind of forces and interactions that define so much of how we move through the world as, as people, but also how much we move through the world as scientists and, and people who actually do scientific research. And yet there's still all these quite big gaps or approximations that we we have to use and and that was kind of where the beginnings of the idea of a book about friction which is effectively what what sticky is came about uh the, the kind of existence of these terms in the real world in inverted commas and and their absence from the from the scientific literature there was a really nice example that you gave in a talk with the royal institute or yeah the royal institution yeah that was a real pinch me pinch me moment <laughs> nice where you talked about the different temperatures of a ice rink depending mm. on the different sport and that was really impressive because of the different ways that the athletes can almost tell what how cold the ice is depending on the sport yeah i found that mad as well and i think it was something i kept coming back to in different contexts to you know we can have this instinctive understanding of something we see this with crafts people you know we see this with glass blowers and um, they understand the intricacies of how glass moves in a way that scientists it's a, it's a different type of understanding it's no less uh, real it's no less important it's no less valid it's just different and when i spoke to both athletes and ice makers you know because there are like professional ice makers who the who the olympics fly over to each games to, to set up all the rinks they have that instinctive understanding of the ice and an athlete can tell you from almost the moment especially like speed skaters where you want to keep friction as low as possible and um, they can they they can tell you that it feels like it's fast ice or the ice makers will sometimes tell you that they can hear when the athletes are training on the rink whether it's going to be a good race like so they have all of this understanding and they they have known how to create ice and these rinks are very thin the layers of ice that are on an olympic rink are much thinner than you might imagine um but and they're built up layer 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 by layer over days and days for a single rink but they've known how to do that and they've managed to you know change their recipes and they use very specific types of water and all of that stuff but none of them would describe themselves as a scientist at least none of the ones i would i would have interviewed and yet it's only really in fairly recent years that we have been able to to fully explain and understand, you know, from a scientific point of view, why ice is slippery and how the surface, the, the slipperiness of the surface of ice, the friction on the surface of ice changes with temperature. That's pretty recent that we've actually managed to put numbers and, and information behind that. These ice makers have been doing it for like a century. That's amazing. Yeah, I was really surprised when it, you said that the colder the ice the less slippy it was yeah really interested me yeah like ice that's minus 100 degrees c is like a very rough surface it's it has very Mm. very high friction it's not at all slippery i mean we can't really we don't really interact with ice at that temperature yeah 
but within the ranges that we usually operate or we usually kind of interact with ice, you're kind of between maybe minus 10 and, and zero degrees C. That's kind of where most interactions, human interactions with ice happen. Yeah. Ice is very slippery indeed. So I, yeah, I, I, I find that really interesting. You know, what seems like a silly question, why is ice slippery, actually ends up leading me down a really interesting path and I learned heaps. And that's the bit where you asked the question, and this is uncovering the scientific method and where that comes into all of the research that both Mm. you're doing in the pursuit of the book and all of these scientists are doing in the pursuit of stickiness and the field that they're working in, Mm. going through the data collection and analysis, the experimentation, testing hypotheses, building models, running simulations. Like what particularly impressive or surprising scientific breakthrough stood out to you when writing Sticky? There were heaps of them, like in the in the sense that I went into this with some ideas of topics that I felt like were really well understood. Right. So I was like, there's some of these topics that I'm going to cover that I know will have big question marks at the end of them. You know, I know that we don't really fully understand, like we don't know how to predict the coefficient of friction. Right. I knew that I knew that was a question. But then there were other topics where I thought, oh, yeah, all the science is totally sewn up on this one. So that would be like a nice, straightforward (laughs) research and writing process. And almost always I would speak to people and eventually I'd keep asking questions and eventually they'd be like, yeah, we don't really understand. It's like, oh, no, (laughs) I wanted something neat. And and one of those in some ways is is like the gecko, which is the star of of one of the Mm. chapters in the book. And in that chapter... And it reflects my own research experience was I wanted to go through history and see how we used to think the gecko could create these amazing feats. Like they can climb almost any surface you can imagine. They can do it really quickly, very fast, very lightweight. How are they doing it? Right. So I wanted to go back through and see what was wrong, you know, what the previous theories were and with the goal of getting to the, well, now we know precisely everything exactly correct about the gecko. And I didn't Mm -hmm. really get to that end point. (laughs) So, you know, there were people thought there might've been, it might act like a suction cup. Maybe that's its feet were kind of creating a little vacuum in there. Maybe they were covered in these kind of micro hooks. Like if any of your listeners are climbers, climbing boot crampons, tend to just have hard hooks on them there right. was a theory for a long time that maybe that's how the gecko did it yeah. and that was my head went to velcro yeah exactly velcro like there's all these ideas that people have tested and then disproven to get to the point at which we we kind of now have a fairly complete understanding of the gecko um and and mostly that's been because of microscopes and our developments of Im- increasingly you know high resolution microscopes like the scanning electron microscope that was really the first time, and that's not very long ago, right? That was really the first time that people could zoom in far enough on the gecko's foot to, to realize that what a gecko is actually doing is it's tapping into van der Waals interaction. Um, it's covered in these hairs. Its toes are covered in these hairs. Those hairs have lots of split ends, and the ends of those split ends are just a few atoms in width. So wow. a gecko can get its foot into contact that's about one nanometer away from the atoms in the wall. And, you know, I was like, whoa, this is this is crazy. And then I met engineers who are trying to kind of tap into some of that understanding and seeing if they can reproduce some of those features to to create, you know, better grippers or climbing robots or anything like that. And they've had huge success. 
but they haven't gotten anywhere near the level of detail or intricacy. We can't create anything as as complex and as detailed and hierarchical structures. We can't create them as small as the gecko has them. You know, we're way, way off that. And I didn't think that was true. I thought we were like, yeah, we got it. We know exactly how it works. Right? So I find that quite surprising. And maybe it's just because I'm not a biologist. I hadn't put a lot of thought <laughs> into how lizards, how geckos uh, work. Um, but I found it surprising that even though we now have engineers who have, who have successfully tapped into a lot of how a gecko's foot operates and have been using it on the International Space Station, there's even a couple of companies who've developed these grippers to apply in factories where you're lifting awkwardly shaped objects up, you know, moving them around. We're still nowhere near getting to full grips of, of how the gecko's foot works. And I, I right. loved that. Yeah. Because there was a chap in your book who tried to climb up the side of a building by replicating that process. But yeah. he was kind of um, risking himself, I guess, yeah, doing it. Yeah, he was. And he's, there. he's a real interesting guy, Elliot Hawks. You know, he developed and it did work. You know, he really did scale the yeah. side of a building like probably more like Spider-Man really than a gecko in that sense, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, I trust in the engineering and the science, but I'm not sure if they mm. handed me the, the climbers if I would have mounted it myself. <laughs> yeah, he's really taking the experiment to the extreme there. Very much. <laughs> oh, it's really cool. There's loads of examples like this in the book that made me like think, wow, what is it in nature that we're trying to replicate? Mm. Um, for example, flight. And, you know, we see animals flying and then we replicate flight and have to overcome things mm. like aerodynamic drag but even more like real world applications for anybody who plays sports so mm. things like golf balls flying through the air uh, curling as a sport and yeah. um, swimming and what yeah. people wear swimming and a couple of things that stood out to me like when i use post-its they don't leave a residue behind or when i use super glue it doesn't stick to the inside of its container mm-hmm. so like all of these kind of real world and almost fun to think about examples and then the important ones about like vehicles needing to brake and um, understanding earthquakes for example yeah what are the kind of big impacts and future developments that all of this knowledge is going to head towards yeah that's a huge question and I think um I think that it's the the main thing for me is that we're starting to understand things like friction at a different scale than we used to understand it. You know, we've been very good at manipulating friction always, you know, since for millennia, we've been masters of being able to reduce friction where we needed to and to increase friction where we needed to do that. Because friction isn't always bad. You know, sometimes we think of it as just a, a form of energy loss. But, you know, you mentioned vehicles. We need friction in order to travel fast. <laughs> we need yeah. the tire to grip in order to be able to travel forward. But I think what's been interesting in the last few years, and I'm I, I'm hopeful that will lead to a real kind of game change in in the world of friction and and tribology, which is really the study of friction, is we now are developing a fairly sophisticated, still incomplete, but fairly sophisticated understanding of what happens way down at the nanoscale. So okay. you know, you think about friction, things like friction, and then you know, in loads of aspects of thermodynamics too. Really, it's about statistics, right? You, you need big numbers of things, and that gives you the information that you need. 
But what happens like when you have just a couple of atoms? You know, if you've got like atomically flat surfaces and you're sliding them along one another, why do we still see something that looks a bit like friction? Why do we see a resistive force? Like what the hell is going on? So I that in the very last chapter of the book, I kind of delved into that very murky, murky world. Not sure if I came out entirely unsullied from it, but, um, you know, that idea of what, what are the, what's the fundamental mechanism behind friction? And there are loads of researchers doing interesting research at that scale, you know, using things like the atomic force microscope, excuse me, to slide across atomically flat surfaces or very perfectly engineered surfaces that are steps so we can understand how the tip interacts as it goes down a step versus up a step. And, you know, we're really starting to understand what is going on way down there at the atomic scale. And what I'm hopeful about and what I hope happens is that we start to to bridge the gap between those two areas of knowledge. This macro scale understanding of friction that we've had for centuries and has allowed us to develop things like lubricants that we can use on Mars rovers. You know, that's like yeah. a totally normal thing that we can do now as humans, which is crazy. And now we're starting to understand what happens way down at the atomic scale. If we can bridge that gap, there is no reason that we couldn't develop surfaces that are incredibly efficient at sliding across one another like maybe we could do away with lubricants entirely and that wouldn't be a bad thing because a lot of lubricants are made from fossil fuels um you know could we find ways to control friction if we really understand it at that scale and we really understand it at that scale could we develop a unified model that would allow us to actually transition that information from way down at the atomic scale to the industrial scale and that is the big question. Like that was one thing that a lot of people, a lot of tribologists who I spoke to were fascinated by bridging that gap and and what opportunities that might open up to us. Um, so that's definitely something I'm keeping an eye on for sure. Amazing. And part of what struck me about talking through the process of like earthquakes and yeah. what a big impact they have reminded me of your book Science and the City and how important the design of cities is because we're putting those on a world and a platform that can shake and shake dramatically with, you know, devastating consequences potentially. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the amazing engineering that goes into the infrastructure that powers our metropolises and Mm -hmm. what kind of discoveries you made writing Science and the City. Yeah, for sure. Um, I might even start kind of, I'll tie back to your question about earthquakes because I hadn't really thought about the, well, you know, I thought about the challenges of building infrastructure in seismic areas on a very hand wavy level, you know, and it was only when I started looking into it that I realized that it's actually a New Zealander who invented what's probably the most like ubiquitous, um, what we call base isolation piece of infrastructure. And they're called lead rubber bearings. And that kind of tells you what they are. Um, but his name was Bill Robinson. And I, I'd i never heard of him before ever in my life. And he's, his work and his engineering and his invention has saved, I would say, tens of thousands of lives because these lead rubber bearings are used as a basis as a lot of very large structures. So in Wellington, where I live now, um, there's a museum called Te Papa. And Te Papa is like 
a huge museum on the waterfront in Wellington. And it's quite a new, I think it was like 1980s or something that it was built in. Um, and it actually is built on these lead rubber bearings. And what they are are these kind of layers of steel and rubber and steel and rubber like a sandwich but many many layers deep with a central core of lead and the the laminated layers kind of act as a spring and they kind of pull the building back if it moves laterally in the quake but then the lead in the middle because it's such a soft metal it kind of acts as the damper so it kind of dampens the the motion because it can it can flex and flow a little bit so the combination of those two can give you buildings that can withstand you know large buildings that can withstand a surprisingly large earthquake um there was one example and i had to look this up because i couldn't remember um what the name of the building was it's called the telecommunications computer center in kobe in japan and during the 1995 earthquake that was basically the only building that was left standing and it used these lead rubber bearings that were invented by this new zealander who who passed away about 10 years ago and i had never heard of this man (laughs) and and that was uh, generally doing research around cities i kept i kept coming across things that i knew i knew nothing about and also invented by people i'd never heard of so that was a really fun part of the process because i would hope that in writing about cities and you know i've written about cities since science and city came out um for forbes and stuff um writing about this topic i would hope would introduce people to looking at their city in a slightly different way you know just changing the way they view the metropolis um but you know a lot of the book is also about really historic things like the tube and yeah something i hadn't fully kind of appreciated is how much of a role the tube itself played in shaping London so you know in the early days they'd literally put train stations in the countryside and give the workers houses near the new station um so the 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 shape of London is entirely defined by where tube lines were you know we think of now you know you look at Dublin for example and we're having to kind of retrofit infrastructure on sometimes challenging streets but yeah. in victorian london they were building the infrastructure before they had the houses <laughs> you know so it's a, wow. it's quite a different approach and and again that changed that changed the way i thought about cities and urban planning and and really about how brave we need to be if we want to build cities that are better for people and more sustainable as we move forward so they were the kind of themes that i took away from the book i suppose have you been through many earthquakes or what was it? Uh, yeah, a couple, nothing too there? major. Um, thankfully, yeah. just just the odd little rumble. But everyone has this app on their phone in New Zealand. Uh, it, there's a network of, of seismic uh, sensors all over the country and uh, it sends you alerts on your phone. Um, and so everyone's kind of not obsessed with them, but you're, well, you're just aware or you're just aware of them. So they, yeah. they can feel the little ones you kind of. A lot of them you don't even notice because they're very, very small. Um, but yeah, yeah, the odd time you'll get one and it feels like you've, you know, a very, very big truck has just like rammed into the fence outside your house. Um, yeah. yeah, they're not that's the funnest thing to go through. But I've been lucky and haven't touched wood anyway. I haven't been through a serious one as yet. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. There's so many cool science, technology and the engineering aspects that you describe in Science in the City. And you bring it together and in one of the later sections called Connect, you highlight the invisible connections as well that we may not be as uh, clearly obvious to us. And it's yeah. kind of summarized as trade, communications and food. 
which raises questions about information transfer via GPS and satellites, supply chain, supply chain mm. networks and their optimization and global food distribution reports. And we're seeing post-pandemic how damaging some effects and interruptions to that can be. So yes. what key challenges and like aspects of these may become more and more important in the future? I think you've hit the nail on the head, Jason. I think the pandemic has really highlighted how fragile our global um, trade you know, network is. There's huge benefits, obviously, to having a much more globalized, much more connected world. But when so much of you know manufacturing for example so much of it is kind of concentrated in one part of the world like china for example um when an event like this happens and everything grinds to a halt we don't really have a plan b um Mm. and definitely when i've been talking to people even just kind of with my city's hat on when i've been talking to people um in different parts of the world about totally different challenges one of the things that has been mentioned in lots of contexts to me is how we're going to start relocalizing some aspects of of our life and that might be kind of um distributed energy generation for example so instead of relying on a on a centralized grid we're going to see many more kind of community-led grids or solar panels that are based in in buildings and and the building taps into that power or sells off what it doesn't use or combined heat of power plants within within um within a you know a big skyscraper or whatever trying to kind of centralize relocalize some of those aspects and and of course you think about things like urban farms or people growing um Mm. vegetables and things I think we're possibly too far gone to to move entirely away from a globalized world. But I do think that the pandemic has really shown that we need to have more resilient infrastructure within our local, um, you know, and I say local with, you know, maybe split the world up into eights or something um, within closer to home effectively, because as it is, it's just we're so reliant often on just one region or or one port in some cases um we've seen that 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 doesn't really work in in times of crisis so i I definitely when i was talking to electricity people thinking about electricity thinking people thinking about food production about materials production you know a lot of the focus is on trying to not just recycle materials construction materials but actually really change the way that we build our cities based on materials becoming available when we demolish old buildings so there's a lot more i've definitely seen like a general trend of of people saying what aspects of urban life can we kind of relocalize to make it a bit more resilient and and feed feed that to within a broader global system wow and it's bringing to mind the idea of that circular economy that yeah. we want to head towards. Totally. And I know as we grow older and I have more friends who are becoming homeowners and they talk about like buying solar panels and contributing back to the grid. And those are conversations I never heard of when I was younger and people wanting allotments to grow their own food. So it's a great totally. initiative that we're seeing. Mm, totally agree. Yeah. Exactly the same as you, Jason, on that. <laughs> And as we head towards like this unprecedented connectivity and regenerating so much, like tons of data nowadays and starting to embed Internet of Things, people have wearable tech, we're seeing more and more robotics, artificial intelligence potentially shaping and changing our lives. And one thing that comes to mind is self-driving cars Mm. in the future. 
you paint a really exciting but also lovely picture of a possible day in the life in a future city at the end of Science in the City. What kind of important aspects of AI and future tech have you come across in your work that will become more prevalent in our everyday lives and perhaps sooner than we think? That's a good question. Um, I have, and I'm possibly preaching to the converted here, but I have kind of mixed feelings <laughs> around big data. <laughs> um, mm. I, I think that we have such a natural tendency as humans to just want to be constantly gathering information. You know, we need to be gathering information yeah. and gathering more data at all times. And actually, <laughs> it's not always helpful. <laughs> you know, it's not always, yeah. it doesn't mm-hmm. always kind of work. Um, so I think I would hope that we will start. Well, maybe this is really naive of me, but my hope is that we become a bit more discerning with the way that we use data and the way that we collect data and that we don't move towards a system where those people who are already marginalized are even more marginalized by the fact that information is being gathered on them. Um, I think as humans, we're pretty, we're pretty terrible at that. You know, we have lots of Silicon Valley bros who only think about the technology and they don't really think about the implications. They often don't even talk to the people who's you know, they're pretending or wishing that their technology is going to serve to see what they actually need. So my hope is that we will get a bit more discerning in that regard. And the data that we are collecting is, is for good reasons and not just for tracking reasons or for marketing reasons. Um, Like around driver, driverless cars are an interesting one in particular, because I think actually the barrier there is not technology. The barrier to you know, having autonomous vehicles is regulation. And I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily because Mm -hmm. what we don't want to have is a situation which we've seen multiple times in the last few years as autonomous vehicles have been on streets where the computer makes the wrong decision and they crash into something, they crash into someone. Um, So we really need to get get our stuff together when it comes to regulating uh, autonomous vehicles so that when obviously because these cars don't know how to do anything that we don't tell them how to do right we have to teach them how to work so how do we teach them to make a moral decision what happens if someone is in a car in their autonomous vehicle that's being driven by the by the car itself and um, a situation occurs that the car has to make a decision between saving its passenger or saving someone on the street that's an impossible position for a computer to be in so um yeah, that's, I think, generally. And I think this is possibly my my mind has changed a little bit since I wrote Science in the City uh, because I've looked into this a bit more now and realised that maybe my naivety was painting possibly too shiny a picture um, of, of how we use data in cities. Uh, so, yeah, my hope is that we just become a bit more discerning and with more diverse workforces moving into the tech sector, which is so long overdue, we have many more people arguing uh for their case and arguing and saying no this is not fair this is going to this is going to you know separate out this part of society this is going to impact these people so we have many more diverse voices in the room and i think with that comes better decisions around data i hope yeah yeah fully fully agree i, lo- I love that point actually um it, it brings me on to the idea of how important the scientific method itself is the application of it and in all of your work, you are employing the scientific method in 
highlighting the scientific method as it has been employed by the people who you were talking to in these various uh, fields of research and the work that they are living and breathing. And those scientists and researchers themselves have a diversity of backgrounds and cultures and their own communication styles. And you're bringing that all together and creating this like common theme, especially in, in these two books that we've talked about. And it's a key aspect of science communication. Mm. And I wanted to like just finally ask you, for anybody working in both science and, and any way with data, delivering insights, do you have any top tips for how to communicate it effectively and successfully? Yeah, um, I think if I were to summarize it in one, if I had to give one top tip, because I've been asked before, it's like, what one single thing would you say? I'm like, oh, wow, that's that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's to simplify your message always. We have such uh, like, and I get it, you know, and especially Irish people, we talk a lot and we talk around the houses and and it's part of our culture and it, and it's part of what makes us who we are. But when we're trying to communicate something important, often we feel we should pad around it and actually in my experience all that does is dilutes the central message so the my key tip is to just keep asking yourself what it is you want to your audience to take away from this interaction so whether that's in terms of like infographics or a talk that you're giving or even you know a elevator pitch you have to give what is the key message you want them to walk away with? And that should be the central goal. Everything else should support you achieving that goal. Every Anything beyond that, unfortunately, is extraneous. So you just have to leave it aside. If, you, if your goal is to communicate a specific you know, topic or a specific idea. If your goal in general is to kind of get people interested and engaged in science, that's where you kind of have the opportunity to tell stories and that's what I see my books as you know I get to I get to put the padding in there I get to faff around in a lab with some scientists or some geologists and and see how their equipment works because that's painting a picture for my readers you know it's taking them with me on this visit and meeting these people with me um because I'm not the expert right on any of the topics that I write about I am not the person doing the research I am the person or my job I see my job is as someone who can synthesize you know gather all this huge amounts of data and I do very much take a scientific view on it I think I probably read more research papers than most scientists um you know I take all this information and try and and wrap a story around it so that it's not overwhelming for my readers but if your goal is to communicate a single idea unfortunately you kind of have to move most of that away you have to pick one very straightforward story and you have to just zoom in as tightly as you can so I would always recommend that people even if you're writing a paragraph I'd try and I'd delete full sentences and see if my paragraph still makes sense um it's not that I will have a very short par a shorter paragraph by the end but I really challenge myself to just always try and focus on on the single idea um, because that is what you want you know if you're trying to get someone to change their mind like or or get funding or whatever just focus on the single message and keep challenging yourself to to simplify 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 that's brilliant you've immediately got me thinking of the times when somebody asks me to write a report about something and I just write and write and write and hand it off but if they tell me write it in 200 words Oh wow, that's the hard work. Yeah. And so everything you've spoke, you've said, just speaks to me in that regard. 
Um, Larry, this has been absolutely brilliant. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, you have a website and you're on Twitter, actively on Twitter. If anybody wants to get in touch, how should they reach out to you? Yeah, Twitter's probably the best because I'm never off it. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> at Laurie, L-A-U-R-I-E dot Winkless, W-I-N-K-L-E-S-S. Or my website's my name also. You can find me on there and uh, I'm on LinkedIn and stuff too. So, but yeah, Twitter is is where I go to just just talk. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. That's LaurieWinkless.com. Yeah, LaurieWinkless.com. Yeah, my new shiny new website. <laughs> it's lovely. Thanks. Brilliant. Larry, thank you so much for joining us in the Data Cafe today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Jason. It's been a real pleasure to hang out with you again. Thanks for joining us today at the Data Cafe. You can like and review this on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Or if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us, jason at datacafe.uk or jeremy at datacafe.uk or on Twitter at datacafepodcast. We'd love to hear your suggestions for future episodes.